Welcome to Private Market Talks, a Proscara podcast. I'm your host, Peter Antosha. Today, my guest is Matt Massier. Matt is a principal at Lincoln Shear Management and a member of the firm's origination team. He oversees the growth of several of the firm's portfolio companies and works closely alongside management teams to scale their businesses. Founded in 1986, Lincoln Shear Management has over $1.7 billion of private equity funds under management and has completed more than 110 acquisitions across the lower middle market. Matt speaks to us today about Lincoln Shear's investment strategy, where they see opportunities, and how their portfolio companies are weathering challenging economic headwinds. You'll find a transcript of this episode at privatemarkettalks.com, as well as links to other useful information. And please don't forget to subscribe and click like after listening. And now, without further delay, my conversation with Matt Massier. Welcome, Matt. Appreciate you joining us on Private Market Talks. Thank you. Happy to be here and thank you for hosting me. Absolutely. It'd be great if we could start off with uh, you telling us a little bit about Lincolnshire Management and what their uh, focus is. Yeah, happy to. So Lincolnshire Management has been around since 1986. Uh, we're a middle market private equity firm focused on companies in the 10 to 25 million EBITDA range. It's not really a hard, fast range. We've invested in a number of industries, over 110 investments in our history. It's a great place. Wonderful people work here. I think more than anything, the culture here is, is, is great. Relatively flat organization. We've uh, grown a lot in the past few years and currently investing out of our fifth fund if we go to market with that. Right now, we focus, I would say, as a generalist, we, we still have a, a bias towards, I'd say, consumer businesses, business services and industrial services, and lastly, specialty and niche manufacturing. That's not hard and fast. We have done things outside of that. But where I think we set ourselves apart is we'll roll our sleeves up on things that necessarily wouldn't survive an elevator pitch. And we, we put the effort in to, to learn about that. And then we create the flexibility and we are flexible ourselves to help meet the need of founders because most of our businesses are founder owned and in rare instance, uh, are they not? Great. And uh, describe uh, your, you know, your approximate deal size, generally speaking, your equity check. Um, yeah. 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 Happy to. Uh, on the low end, I would say 50 million enterprise value, but we have done deals north of 250. Uh, so it's quite a large range. And the reason for that, in some cases, uh, in certain markets, the best asset may not be the biggest one. And we will buy something downsize on a lower size range to then work that way up to getting it to something that's more comparable to some of the companies our portfolio are currently. In terms of equity check, we, on the low end, you'd see us probably write a $20 million check. And then on the high end, we could feel as comfortable as doing 80, maybe even a hundred million. And how, how much leverage are you typically utilizing? Yeah, great question. Um, we are pretty conservative when it comes to leverage. Uh, there's a responsibility around what we do and how we work for our companies not to overlever them. We are also value investors. So as value investors, we're, we're not in those nosebleed high multiples. On, and in most cases, we have reasonable levels of leverage, kind of more akin to 50, maybe 60% that of uh, the total value of the transaction. Yeah, it's actually pretty good compared to some of the upper market points, which are yeah, kind of yeah, the more, gravy train more leverage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not, those the days of doing a, Two dollars down and everything else is dead or long gone. Uh, well before my time too. So uh, I, absolutely, I think that's pretty absolutely. <laughs> um, and what's your exit horizon? 
we look to hold companies three to five years and it's pretty standard for the industry. Mm-hmm. We have an instances where we've been able to exit incredibly quickly. I look at one of our exits of Schumacher. We had that company for 18 months total. That included the sale process and that was a 5X, roughly a 5X return for us. Um, great transaction, great management team, great work here internally to help grow the business uh, and doubling EBITDA as quickly as we did. But in some instances, we've held companies longer. The basis for that is sometimes you, you need a little more time to write the ship and work with management and really roll your sleeves up and get into the weeds to, to get things where they need to be because we have a responsibility to protect our investors' capital. So in instances where we've held companies longer, we, we can say that we're proud that we've returned the capital and brought the money back to our investors. We're not uh, touting those as successes and or necessarily not necessarily failures either, but just as a responsibility to return every dollar that's been given to us. And that's something I think we take pride in. Yeah. And what's your target return on your investments? Yeah. Um, just middle or middle market. The standard is you probably need that 20% IRR to mm-hmm. kind of stay in the dance. Um, that's kind of an, how we underwrite. Well, we also look at a full investable capital, a MOIC, as some would say, um, with a, kind of an expectation of three times. That's really what you need just to tread water, I think, in this industry. You're really shooting for anything better than that. You're taking a tremendous amount of risk in some cases, and you need to be compensated reasonably for that. Uh, and our investors need to be able to justify why they trust us and why they expect us to, and that requires us to perform. I think on a floor though, 8% is, a, is the minimum. Like you, if you're doing less than that, I, I think it's very hard to justify being trusted by your LPs. Yeah. And as you mentioned, your LPs have to trust you to make the correct investments, which is even more challenging right now, given the economic circumstances uh, you're in. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what are or have been the key factors that you've looked at in management or the company to distinguish one opportunity from another? That's a tough one. So I had a really great conversation with one of our managing partners yesterday, and we were discussing this exact thing. And and I will say so many deals really need to start off with a resounding excitement of yes. And because as the more you dig into it, the more you learn, the harder it is to just be a blanket yes. And I think as deals get done, you, you, you learn more and more risk and you got to get comfortable with those things. And how do you, how do you mitigate those risks? And, and what are the things that you have an unfair advantage to, to fix? Or where can you bring in your expertise or your operations and operational expertise or being able to support management to succeed? But to the specific element about what we look for in management teams, it's a partnership. So the ability to trust and have faith that this person can be aligned with you and want to grow the business in a way that is consistent with our expectations from, with the expectations we have from our LPs. Um, so we have to be moving in the same direction. It, may, it actually harks on a, a story that I remember from uh, a, a class in college that stuck with me. A professor of mine was working on the moon, the moon mission, and and they went to visit a site visit. And JFK was there, and he basically said the story that he asked the janitor, "What are we doing?" He says, "We're trying to get a man on the moon." And I think all the way up and down the chain of command, everyone needs to be aligned as to what the goal is and figuring out how quickly you can be aligned on that as soon as possible can tell you how successful you're going to be in the long run. Um, in very rare instances, are, has that not been the case? So aside from trust, I think there's also the, the basic things of the ability to lead 
execute and speed. Speed is the, the second thing uh, I think is most important because we are on the clock. Although three to five years sounds like a lot of time, these companies are relatively large. So it's sometimes it can be like moving an oil tanker or making a cultural shift to becoming more sophisticated or implementing a growth mindset can, can be challenging. And let alone also managing integration of add-ons that are likely happening and also managing the debt levels and meeting your obligation to lenders. Right. And those are not easy things to discern, as you said, trust, a shared sense of mission, speed of ex- you know, the, the capacity of management to execute in, a, in an expeditious manner in the time frame that you have. How do you figure those things out? Yeah, I mean, you can you can ask questions all day, but it really comes from FaceTime. I, I think about how much time we spend at companies during diligence, post-diligence, and also trusting our advisors in our network. We have a lot of people who can come in and they have forgotten more than I can learn in the short period that we have. And that you have to lean on that. Uh, trust me, we do get smart fast, but there's mm-hmm. a, you have to there's nothing that can beat experience when someone's been doing something for 10, 20 years. On the younger side of the uh, equation here, I think there has to be a lot of humility to, to trust on people's experiences. And this is extremely relevant today, more so than even in the past few years, as we enter a really precarious economic environment. A lot of investors in my peer group I haven't really lived through a real recession. I think we've, we've had the go-go times, as, uh, or some people are calling it of just zero interest rates and everything's just been up and to the right. I don't think you're going to see that in the next few years. And we have to, to brace for that. So to your question about asking to build trust, it's really, uh, it's not so cut and dry. There's not one thing I could ask and that gets the answer. You, you kind of learn through experiences and understanding that no company's perfect. And that, that's one thing I, I always, a real pet peeve of mine is you go to a manager meeting and you sit across from someone and you talk about their business and they're basically, my business is perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect business. Uh, even their best right. best performing companies are far from perfect. There's no, right. It just doesn't exist. And it's troubling because as a partner and as a sponsor coming in, it's okay to have problems because we want to help you with that. Like we understand like you got to run a business. Like sometimes receivables aren't coming in as quickly as you'd like, or you may have someone who's leaving for parental leave and you, you need to, something's going to take a, a extra week when it could, when you thought it would take a few days and it's okay. I think we like to roll our sleeves up, come in, help management and have reasonable expectations that like at the end of the day, we're all human and we're trying to move towards the same North star. Yeah, no, that's right. But that's, I think you hit upon the art of it. I think there's a lot that goes into analyzing investments in terms of metrics and numbers and projections and spreadsheets and you know uh, data. But one of the, I think what you're touching upon, which may distinguish one opportunity from another, is your innate sense of the ability to measure the capacity of the team on some of the factors that you just mentioned, which is trust. You know, a sense of shared purpose and uh, absolutely. One of the things you mentioned in you know in this current environment, it certainly has changed from what it has been over the last any number of years. So I'm kind of curious, you know, how's your deal flow in terms of what you've seen number of deals and and more importantly the quality of the deals. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of people can speak to Q1 2023 was was pretty slow, especially when you look at the past few years and the volume of deal flow. Going into this environment, we were all picking at downside cases in more detail. I think these past few years with zero interest rate environments, money was cheap. You can do a lot of things. Uh, the ROI calculation was was pretty simple to do. I think going forward, we're going to see an environment where not only are, are you going to have to really kind of be in the driver's seat and making sure that 
things are being done and executed properly, but you have to can be open-minded to opportunities that otherwise don't exist. Like if competitors are struggling or, or there's new partnerships or ways to think outside the box, that's going to be important. But when it comes to deal flow, we have to originate from more sources. I think right now we probably see anywhere between a thousand, 2000 opportunities a year uh, as a firm. And, and we're probably transacting like half a percent of that. We're probably doing yeah. a, a few deals every year. I think this environment is going to call for not just a traditional leverage buyout on the fairway. I think there are going to be opportunities to source deals from non-traditional sources, uh, either through carve-outs, good companies with bad balance sheets that would, could be perceived as distress, and then also looking within your industry to do add-on acquisitions and if, you, if the valuations for platforms aren't right. When I think about the LP environment, I, I think this is a good environment for us largely because we are valued. Um, we are a value investor. We've, we're very disciplined on price and we are going into companies and helping management to really drive organic growth and also supplement organic growth of, of, of acquisitions. So this is an environment that we will succeed in and we feel pretty good going into it. Those are different kind of up opportunities than you were looking at before. It's also an interesting time when you look in the, in the, in the broader horizon of COVID, right? So COVID in 2020, a lot of companies, whether for a short period or a prolonged period, were materially impacted, unless you were like selling toilet paper or, or something. But you really had a correction. And then in 2021, you're still dealing with that. I think 2022, you might have actually had some of the benefit from things that were delayed in those two prior years. And I think this year has kind of really been like the first real normal year for a lot of companies that we see. And, and even then, they can't catch a break um, because now interest rates are, are rising <laughs> right. at a clip that no one could have guessed. And, and you're looking at cash interest rates that are very, very challenging for a fast-growing or even moderately growing company when you're, you're worried about cash. I mean, we get the cash report from our businesses on a daily basis, and we have a lot of sympathy for anyone in the middle market that's trying to manage this environment. So when I looked at the budgets for our companies for this year, I think there's a lot of sensitivity in, in how I look at the first six months. And as we think going into the middle of this year and we approach our reforecast, there's a lot of uncertainty. And uncertainty is the worst thing that you can deal with in our industry because we're, we're to make investments for the long term. So how do you alleviate that? I think it's about a time scale. So we've made investments consistently over the past few years. They'll continue to perform and we'll continue to deploy capital at a pace that can hopefully give not only just us, but our LPs some peace of mind. Yeah. I do want to come back to what you're hearing from your management at your portfolio companies. Uh, before we get to that topic, uh, just staying on the investment strategy uh, for a minute. In terms of how you're approaching the opportunities today, has your approach to deals changed in terms of the speed at which you're doing them, the diligence that you make up. Absolutely. We almost exclusively focus on founder-owned companies now. Uh, the bar for something that is sponsor-owned is, is, is much higher. Um, in those instances, too, we're trying to move quickly, like as quickly as we can, get things signed up faster, uh, get to a state of, a point of exclusivity even faster for opportunities that are the right fit. So going back to what I was saying, you have to kind of start with that resounding yes. 
because the more you learn, the more you can get concerned about and the more you have things you have to get comfortable about because you're never going to know everything as much as you, you want to. There are factors at play that are just always outside of your scope or horizon. It makes me think of that, that quote, smart people hit targets no one else can hit, genius hits targets no one else can see. So when I think mm -hmm. about some of the members of the investment committee who have the foresight to ask the question that that your youthful exuberance might have missed, it, it's always great to have that. And those are really wonderful learning moments because they turn into opportunities for us to create value because other people may, may look at something and say, Hey, we don't want to touch that, or that's not a right fit for us. We can see something that other people may not and really get in there and know it's going to take a lot of work to be and be transformative and grow this business. I think about one of our larger portfolio companies where the, the performance of that company has been solid and it's continued to grow. But what's really special is the way we've been able to change the quality of the revenue for that business from a one-time project-based revenue to something that's more recurring or reoccurring in nature. So that's the type of work we're doing here to improve the quality of these two businesses and hopefully rewarded for that effort on the out. In addition to speed and, and exclusivity, it's coming with value to the seller. So I think you private equity is a quite a mature market now. A lot of people are getting deal flow and, and very rarely you're the only one calling someone to, to present them with an incredible opportunity. So you have to bring a lot of value to the table, which is where I think Lincolnshire in our ability, not only flat organization, but a resourceful one. So you have the three teams I had mentioned before, being able to work with management in ways that help make their lives easier. Because in often cases, like the management team is probably the previous owner and, and they see a vision for their business and they want to get there, but it's really hard. It's very hard to take a business when so much of your net worth and your life is tied into it. The resources around you are kind of tapped and you're not sure you have 10 different directions and you're not which yeah. one, which one should you yeah. take? And I think can you us give an coming example? In, can you give an yeah. example of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think I, I think of one of our companies uh, in the Midwest, in the Kansas City area, was growing quite nicely, had previous owners, had opportunities to to kind of grow the business in organically, but there are so many places you could go geographically with that business. And as partners, we kind of, we came in and we helped them in a lot of ways. So we we did an acquisition in six months on the West Coast to help grow that side of the business because it was too difficult to grow it organically to enter that, that region. So the acquisition we helped and took that off their plate, dealt with all the docs and everything. We sourced it, helped with getting the deal closed. And to the extent possible, we helped with the integration by having one of our now operating partners slot in a CEO for a little bit. I spent a lot of time at that business personally. So did some of my other colleagues trying to just create value where we can. And that it can be, and it's about having no ego. I mean, there's things that can ask you to something as small as, hey, help draft a help draft this, something to help us find a person for this role to as something as significant as we need to figure out what's the proper direction to go or creating a whole value stream map of the company. There is no, nothing, no job too small and no job too big when you're sitting in the private equity role because you have to think like an owner. And I know that's how they think. They go to bed mm -hmm. worrying about the little things as much as the big things. And you got to be right in lockstep with them and supporting them and having that mindset. So there are so many, so many instances I can think of where people at the firm, not just anyone at the firm has had to go to the business and, and fill in a role. And I, I think we, we're, we're trying to do that for our, our partners and our future partners and presenting them with the value that we can bring and, and not more than just capital. It's we, we want to be genuine partners. Yeah. So where do you see, you know, either in terms of sector or industry, where do you see the, you know, the exciting opportunities for investing over the next oh, six, 12, 18 months? Oh, you asked me to give away all my secrets. Um, <laughs> uh, so 
Um, I, I think we have a lot of excitement around manufacturing right now and consumer. I know discretionary consumer is a little bit more challenging, but certain aspects of consumer find attractive right now. We think they will they will be able to weather a recession quite well. And then when I think on the manufacturing side, I think some of those businesses actually have re recovered from COVID a little bit sooner than my earlier statement about 2023 being normalized here. So you can look at that those some of those businesses and, and have a good sense of how they'll perform. And they also tend to fall within how we how we perceive value, right? So as value investors, we're looking for companies that, that fit that threshold of, in terms of multiples for us. Not to skip over business services, it's just when I think about our broader portfolio, we, we have a couple business services company is in the portfolio right now, and we'll continue to look at them and we're excited about those opportunities. When, they, when you ask me what I think in the near term is gonna have be a great opportunity for us and any anyone in our peer group, I, I lean forward to manufacturing and non-discretionary consumer. So, you know, there's been a lot in the paper, obviously, about the failure of SVP, the takeover of a public bank and just general concerns about the banking industry. And I think there's a general sense that banks are pulling back from lending. And that has led to a concern about the availability of liquidity to fund deal activity. So I'm just kind of curious from your seat on the private equity side, are you seeing a pullback in the available liquidity from banks and you know who's filling that gap? No, we haven't really had any trouble getting liquidity. It has made it has put treasury management more front of mind than I think it initially was. Uh, it, so we we didn't have any exposure to those banks, which is which is great for our companies. But it has led us to some thinking around that. Uh, in terms of doing deals, we we're not concerned. We think we our LPs will be there when we call upon, and our lend our relationships with lenders remain strong. Been a good partner to lenders in the past, and we we continue to do that. I think this is a people business, and uh, like I said earlier, it's a trust business. So then when you have an obligation to do something um, and you do it, people will tend to come back and work with you. What's the, what's the, the saying? Uh, relationships aren't, aren't worth much if they're only done when convenient. And so yeah. in, in environments like this where there's a lot of uncertainty, I think we can we have a lot of faith in our network and our, in our relationships to help us continue to do what we're expected to do, and that's put capital to work. Uh, no, it hasn't been too much of a concern. I think we, yeah. as value investors, we, we haven't playing in the open over-levering companies. We're not in the nosebleed multiples. We have good companies with good balance sheets. So with that mindset, this is a great opportunity um, because yeah. we're, we're kind of playing in the, in the ballpark where they want to play. And yeah. so we haven't had any trouble with our lending relationships and getting deals done. Yeah, especially since you said earlier, you're writing 50% or more equity checks. That's got to give them a lot of uh, comfort to the on the debt side of the balance sheet. Yes. I want to turn a little bit to what you mentioned earlier in terms of your comments about how your portfolio companies are doing. And I'm kind of curious what you see in your portfolio. Not every deal is a home run. And I'm sure you know everybody's portfolio shows some cracks and falters every now and then. So you know, what are you seeing and what are you talking about with your management teams? Well, yeah, default rates, default rates are rising. We are aware of that. Uh, we are sensitive to cash levels and covenants as we approach a potential slowdown. I don't think um, anything is trending in a downward direction as much as I think things are shifting out a little bit further to the right in terms of where we expected them to be. So are, are some of those exit timelines may move a little bit and some of the growth trajectories will still be the, the headline number will still be the same at what we're looking to to get on in terms of EBITDA basis. It just may be a quarter out than, than we are initially prepared for. That's pretty this good if it's only, only a quarter. Look, I, I look, I, 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 
I'm hoping. All right. I, yeah. <laughs> in the event, in the event that it's more than that, um, there are, there's always things we can do, right? We can always yeah. um, put the put the pedal to the metal in terms of working with management to grow faster. And, and, and to what I was saying before, we're we're all working towards the same thing. I think our, our management team, a lot of those guys are really hard on themselves in instances where they they're not where they want to be. And yeah. and that's where a partnership mindset is very important because they know they're not taking Sundays for Saturdays to not think about the business. They're on all the time trying to push a rock up a hill, and it's just about yeah. putting your shoulder to the boulder alongside them. So in instances where things are not moving as as quickly as we'd like, we're aware and we're we're working with them and we're working through it. We have very much a growth mindset, so I don't I don't want to go in. I think Revenue has built a reputation as kind of going in and ruthlessly cutting costs and getting rid of jobs. But in environments like this, more so than ever, you have to think about your responsibility as investors to grow businesses and have a growth mindset. But in the broader economy, like there are families that are depending on these jobs and, and these companies to mm -hmm. succeed. And we have a responsibility to make sure that they do. And that's a tremendous privilege that you cannot take lightly. And we work very hard with our management teams to make sure that they succeed. So I don't go into these this these next few months and potentially even maybe longer lightly, and nor do I think my colleagues or anyone in my, my the middle market. You said something I think is that's really important. That I actually don't think private equity done a really good job of explaining, which is your commitment to growth of businesses, but not necessarily at the expense of jobs. That you feel a responsibility to the entire enterprise and the goal is to have the entire enterprise and all of the constituents succeed with you. I, I think that's a story that doesn't get enough publication because it gets drowned out by the easy criticism <laughs> of, of private equity. Yeah. That's not the fun part of the job. Like I think for the goodness of the whole in instances where things don't go well and, and you're trying to, to right size and get things where they need to be, that's, uh, that's hard. No one ever looks forward to that. No one ever optimizes for that or wishes for that. I think you're always hoping that you can grow a business and you can yeah. create more opportunities for people to to do what they want to do and create an environment or a company that allows people to have a vocation and succeed. So sometimes it's easy when you're looking at Excel in your ivory tower in New York to to kind of get lost in the, just the numbers. But it's that's why I think it's incredibly important for people to spend time with the businesses and, and hear these people's stories and understand what they're worried about. And, and, it's, and it's probably not always the business. And right. it's important to have those conversations and, and think about that. What is your prediction for defaults? It doesn't necessarily have to even be in your portfolio. Just generally speaking, when you look across the industry and your, you know, in your sector of the industry, what do you think default rates will be over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I'll probably talk about the ingredients that go into the soup before I, I tell you what it tastes like. So there, there's a kind of a perfect storm brewing of the past few years, you've had incredibly cheap money. You've had introduction of a lot of capital in the private credit side. Deals that were going for incredibly high multiples were getting done on the assumption of some of those being recurring revenue. I'm kind of looking at the tech side here within our peer group, although we don't do a lot of tech, we do tech enabled, but I think this is important in terms of how we look at the, the default rates. And then lastly, you also have the kind of the loosening of covenants and, and, the, and I think the, 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 the heightened pace of diligence. So mm -hmm. going into the next 12 to 18 months, I think you're going to see that all kind of come to a head in, in terms of if you're a business that was somewhat 
underwritten to the IPO for current revenue or paying high multiples for that. You might have logo churn where companies are just going out of business and in that, that revenue isn't there, whether it's not even like went to someone else, that company's just gone. Or you might have companies start cut back on expenses. And so there's less people to sell to or less less headcount on the company to, to even service or people are consolidating offices or getting rid of offices if you're on the business services side. There is going to be some form of correction for some businesses. Um, and even on the value side where we play on the business services side and the manufacturing side, there may be a slowdown. I think you look at when supply chains were low, people stocked up on inventory and now they're kind of working through that and you might see thing orders slow down. So th- yeah, that is that is a big concern of mine. Now, what's different, unlike before in in this environment, is although interest rates are coming up, it just requires you to kind of up your level of growth and innovation to justify this, the, the interest. But also, there is a tremendous amount of dry powder on the sideline. Mm-hmm. And the, the the growth of private credit and the sophistication of private credit has led me to believe that a lot of situations in the past where the keys would not have been taken on the business. And what I mean by keys for any listeners, when a lender lends to a business, if, if things go, do not perform, the lender has the right to take that business. So mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of cases where lenders are prepared and are going to be equipped to run these businesses or have the third party resources to help in terms of getting things turned around. Um, they are, they are smart and they're sophisticated counterparties and, and you're going to see opportunities like that. So you, because of that and all the dry powder, I don't think you're going to see pennies on the dollars opportunities like you you, you had in the past. But I will hark back to in 08 and 09. I think you're going to see a higher floor in terms of what valuation is going to look like. Because a lot of these companies are really good businesses with just bad balance sheets. Maybe they're over levered. Maybe the growth expectations were a little too lofty. Or maybe the, the, the need to get the deal, win the deal and get the business was better. Was was more was more front of mind than the diligence, and I think all you're you're gonna see that and in, in these next few months, I'm just hoping that we can go we can come out of it relatively clean, unscathed, um, protect as many jobs as possible, and save as many companies as we can, with all the things that I, I mentioned that are at our disposal, and uh, and and continue to to grow the next get into the next growth cycle. So. As to an exact number, you're, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I think it's going to be, it's not going to be insignificant. You're, you're definitely yeah. going to notice that. I think one of the things that you've highlighted is the resilience of these companies that you're working with, that they've been able to manage through very difficult economic times, uh, you know, inflation, increased interest costs, and other factors that you've highlighted, but they're not out of the rough waters yet yeah, i don't think anyone is <laughs> yeah um, uh, i think it'll be interesting to see uh, how it plays out um i think those companies that you mentioned that are that are well positioned either market leaders or indispensable able to pass on pass through costs uh, and continue to do that with customers and are prudent in their cash management and cost uh and and cost controls uh, hopefully will uh, we'll be able to navigate these uh, more difficult times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I was talking like to one of my, my peers who's a lender and they are, their portfolios are massive. Like they have so many more companies in their portfolio because they're lending all over the place. And, and the resources that they have to, to manage their portfolio is finite. And so 
they really do want the sponsors to kind of come early with bad news and they know we're doing our best to help companies and things don't go well and and partner with us and help where they can so that's one thing i think will be interesting in the next few months is is lenders who have that mindset will set themselves apart and sponsors yeah. who are proactive and working with lenders to have you know like the saying like i want bad news before it happens and good news you can tell me good news on monday um yeah. and i think that's what yeah, they're looking yeah, yeah. for and we're going to see that this has been a great conversation i just have a, a couple of uh, a few questions to wrap up so I'm, I'm starting to ask this question of all my uh guests because i just think it's it's a fascinating development and could be revolutionary but i'm not exactly sure how and that is i'm, I'm kind of curious from your perspective what the impact what short or long term do you think AI and, and chat uh, GBT will have not only in your business, but the businesses that you invest in and why? Yeah, I, I'm really excited about generative AI. I think it's, it's when I look at terms of the ability to, to increase people's output um, and the efficiencies that, that it gives is are going to be great. But we're also early, early innings. We might even still be at the tailgate. That's how early we are of this thing. I think when I spent time in crypto, that technology was so nascent back then. And it's what everything goes through kind of the fanfare and excitement. And it's just going to take some time for it to level off. But when I think about what Microsoft is doing specifically in implementing it and putting it to a thing I use every day, um, personally and professionally, it, you're really going to see an ability to, to just do so much. It's going to help our analysts. Yeah. And I also think, you know, hearkening back to where you started and what you talked about in terms of your assessment of companies, you know, in terms of the trust and the expertise and management, I think the art of private equity investing is, and I don't think it's substituted by AI. <laughs> no, I don't think so, it will, but it is, yeah. but it may be helping you get out of the office a little bit earlier. Yeah, there you go. And spend more time with the family, but I, I don't think it's going to take anyone's job in our field, not yeah. too soon, um, or at least I hope. Um, <laughs> Quick question: What what non business book or podcast would you recommend to a friend? Oh, that's really tough because I, I do a lot of business books, but I think uh, an interesting book that I, I encourage a lot of people to 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 dive into is the Metaverse, and I still think that kind of falls in the category of a business book. That is a great book for a couple reasons. I think it brings together all these technologies that that we're hearing about and seeing, and, and tells us how they come together. The author is Matthew Ball. Great book. My favorite podcast, I think, is, is this one called Memory Palace by Nate DeMeo. It mm -hmm. is truly special. The way he tells a story and and really brings you to a time and a place is unlike uh, anything else. So I, I, I want to make a shout out to that podcast. I think it's great. I think uh, the art okay. of story. I think the art of storytelling is is <laughs> just that an art, and it's very difficult. And someone who does it well, like Nathan Hellis is uh, very special so it's good a good recommendation so listen thank you for joining me on private market talks i've really enjoyed uh, our conversation now thank you and for my listeners i appreciate you listening and you'll find a copy of the transcript of this conversation and other helpful links at privatemarkettalks.com 